Isaiah chapter 59. Please turn there with me in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 59. If you don't have a Bible of your own, our ushers have Bibles that they can bring one to you now. If you just raise your hand, they'll bring a Bible to you that you can use throughout our service this morning. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. Let's give our attention then to the reading of God's word, Isaiah chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, and that he does not, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one can enter. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from the one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west 
and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And our Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Let's bow for a word of prayer. We thank you, Father, for your word this morning. We pray that you give understanding to us to challenge our hearts as Brian comes to speak your word today, may you open our hearts to hear what it is you have to say. May you remove that thing in us that rebels against hearing your word. And you give us receptive hearts, hearts that are ready to repent when your Holy Spirit guides us, hearts that are ready to acknowledge you in every way. Hearts that cry out for your grace and for your mercy and receive it. Hearts that honor you, love you, trust you, and walk in obedience to you. Lord, I pray for our hearts right now. Also pray for our bodies, Lord, that you would do healing in our bodies. It is only as long as we live that we have that ability or that opportunity to turn to you, to worship you. And so we pray that you would be gracious to allow us to live, to allow us to give honor to you in right ways, to take advantage of the opportunities that we have right now. Lord, I pray that we live a life that's pleasing towards you in all that we do. I pray for those who are sick amongst us. I think of Ms. Brenda Adams and we pray, pray for her uh, husband as well. As he suffers physically, we pray that you would bless them both. We thank you for her faith. We pray for his as well. We thank you and pray for the entire family. We, pr we pray for the Keys family and the bereavement, loss of their dear brother. And we pray that you just continue to minister within them, within that family, to the needs that are there. And Lord, we pray uh, for others who are suffering, some from relatively minor issues and sore throats and, and uh, congestion and cough and others from stomach issues and, and other things. We thank you for allowing us to be here today who are here. And we, we pray that you would uh, allow us to focus on your word and, and uh, take in what you have to say. Uh, we pray for our families here gathered here today, Lord. And uh, we pray that you would just uh, work in the hearts of, of families and, and bless and provide, um, provide um, your grace for us to, to, to live and be testimonies for you. Um, we pray and thank you for each person, Lord, that's a part of this work in this ministry. There's so many that are faithful in this work, and, and this work couldn't... Uh, wouldn't be the same without them, Lord. And I, so I thank you for them. And I know you will reward every one that does something for your glory, whatever amount it is. Some of it is behind the scenes, in the background. 
Some of it is, is very upfront, but we thank you for each one, and we pray that you just continue that, that, um, that faithfulness amongst your people. Now, we thank you for this opportunity to hear your word. Bless it for your glory. Bless the choir as they come now with special music before the preaching of your word, that you might be honored in everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
He is more than wonderful. Amen. And I thank God for putting a word in my mouth, an opportunity to preach his word to you today. I thank God because, you know, we need a word because the church is under spiritual attack right now. Sin is attacking. There's sickness. People on the brink of life and death. And God wants to send a word of encouragement. And the beauty of this passage is that Isaiah is writing to a people that are under spiritual attack. The Israelites, a kingdom that is about to fall, poisoned by evil. And in the midst of this part of Isaiah, he's answering the question of why we sometimes don't see God. And he gets into chapter 59 and he explains why we don't see God. In the first three verses, he says, Behold, the hand of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. It's not that there's anything wrong with God. He's still powerful. He still has a purpose. He still blesses. He still speaks. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. It's sin that divides you from God that you can't see. There's a lesson that we see throughout Scripture. What happened in the Garden of Eden? They disobeyed God. What did God do? He put them out of the garden. Before, they will walk with God every day. And now, because of sin, that opportunity was lost. Separation at the cross. Jesus is on the cross. Where are his disciples? They're nowhere to be seen. Even separation between Jesus and the Father. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because sin was put on him. Not his sin, but our sin. Separation in eternity. The rich man said, hey, send Lazarus over here. Just dip his finger in some water. He could come over here and relieve me just for a bit. Abraham said, no. There's a gulf between you and us. There is a separation between you and God that we cannot cross. Sin divides us from God. It makes it appear that he cannot hear because sin hides his face. And you are guilty of sin. The picture he gives is you walk to a murder scene you see somebody's hands covered with blood and the murder weapon in their hands. You're guilty. We don't have to do a whole forensic evidence case, right? We don't have to hire detectives. We see you're guilty. What kind of sin is he talking about? Violence, evil acts, lies, harmful speech. It's the universality of sin. It's just all sin. You're guilty. That's why you cannot see your God a very accusatory passage, isn't it? 
And he goes on from there because he's like, well, you know, Isaiah, come on, man. Tone it down a little bit here, brother. You know, my heart is hurt. But he says, no one enters suit justly. No one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from the one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity. The deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run the evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They are made, their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. No one does good. They abuse the law with dishonesty. They dream up problems, and then this results in evil. They produce evil in uselessness. Their produce is poison to the one who takes it. That's why he says they hatch adder's eggs. And then later he says, he who eats the eggs dies. They produce poison, and when people eat of the poison, they get killed. They produce uselessness. They produce a web. And what good does a web do? Can you wear a web? They work at evil. They're not lazy. They work at evil. They work hard to do wrong. Their whole body is involved in it. It's their hands. It's their feet. It's their mind. They're dedicated to evil. Oh, I used to be surprised. People would tell me, oh, man, I'm addicted to cigarettes. And they would go out there 30 below. They still going outside smoking their cigarettes. You're not addicted. You're dedicated. Doesn't make sense for you to do all that, but you got your dedication. Their path is evil. You notice that everything with verse 8 has to do, and verse 7 has to do with roads, right? The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. You have made their roads crooked. Those who treads on them knows no peace. What is going on here? Their way is wicked. What do we have described here? Well, it's a concept in the Bible called total depravity, right? The abuse of the law. And we say to ourselves, well, where does this happen? Have you looked around yourself? I remember years ago, there was a lawsuit over McDonald's coffee being spilled. And you might say to yourself, brother, come on, that's not that, not that evil. Let me ask you this question. Did a person who got burned by coffee deserve millions of dollars? If I told you right now, I'll pour burning coffee on you and you get millions of dollars, who wouldn't take that deal? That's abuse of the law. And you might say, well, that's not a moral question. What happened years ago with the Supreme Court overturned marriage laws? Now, you're not supposed to overturn a law unless there's precedence. What precedence is there for a man and a man or a woman and a woman to get married? None. So you made it up. Abuse of the law. How many people are trying to go to the law and make a lawsuit just to get rich? It's abuse of the law. Work to produce evil. They work hard. What are these professors doing? They're studying gender studies. And what are they doing when they study gender studies? They go through all this research and they go through all these studies. They spend hours in the lab trying to determine that a man is a man and a man is a woman. What? 
And you look at it and you say to yourself, who came up with this stupidity? But somebody is working hard to be stupid. They got doctorates. They can argue us in circles. But they don't know when somebody is born to look at them and look between the legs and say, that's a boy. It's pretty obvious to the common man. But these people work hard to supplant truth. Their path is evil. That's why there's no peace in the Middle East. Why is there no peace in the Middle East? Because too many people make money for war. The people who make the guns make money. The people who make the bullets make money. The people who produce the clothes, the people who go to war wear make money. Where does all that money go? To somebody's pockets. And you sit there and you say, some imam is sitting there and he's saying to somebody in his church, go build yourself up. But is he doing that? No, not him. You know, it was crazy in the last conflict that happened over Israel, there were some of the people who ran the conflict who were billionaires. All the money that's dedicated to Palestine, and those people are dead poor. And people blame the Israelites. It's not them. How did the Palestinian leaders become billionaires? How did that happen? And their people are broke. They set up their headquarters in the hospital. And then get mad when innocents get killed. I'm sorry, it's your plan. You built the side of your bunkers out of innocence. The innocent blood is on your hand. It's the path to do evil. There is no path for peace. You can't have peace with somebody like that. And then we got a lot of the world, most of the world, convinced and saying, well, let there be peace in Israel. How are you going to have peace with that? You can't have peace with that. The, one of the part of the world, right, a quarter of the world is Muslim. A quarter of the world hates Israel and don't care what it takes to get rid of them. And the rest of the world pretends that they can try to understand them. There's no path to peace. He says... They try to cover their nakedness with webs, but there's no clothing there. Nakedness is a depiction of evil. Ever since the Garden of Eden. What happened when they sinned? They realized that they were naked, but they had always been naked. What's the problem? Sin produces shame. And you can't get away from your own shame because you can never run away from your own mind. He goes to the next section and he talks about this, that justice is far from us. We yearn for many things, but we can't have them. Look what he says here. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness, and for brightness we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as at twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. What is this talking about? Deep yearning for something that you cannot have. A hole in a man's heart that can't be filled. We hope but we don't have. We grope. We reach. We're searching for something. We wish we landed on something solid, but we don't know where it is. 
We're like those who have no eyes. We're like those who are blinded. We stumble. Why do we stumble? Well, there's two reasons that we stumble. One is because we're walking on uneven ground. We have no foundation. You talk to people in society and you ask them, why are you living? What are you doing day to day? They don't know. They have no ground beneath them. You ask them why you think what you think. There's no foundation beneath it. That's why they stumble. They also stumble because they're weak. It's amazing to me. My brother told me all the time. I used to think when I was younger that people in prison were tough. And as discussion with me went on when he used to work in the prison, he used to tell me, he finally said, people in the prison are weak. They're weak. That's why they're in prison, because they can't stand it. See, when you go to work and your boss yells at you, you might be mad, you might go to your desk and grumble, but you get back to work. But these people, they yell at them, and then they slug them. Now they're in jail, because they can't endure. They're weak. We have a society of weakness. We got men that are weak. We got women that are weak. We got people who are weak and they say, well, I was tempted, so I failed. So what? You're weak. We got churches that are weak. I talk to pastors and say, hey, man, maybe you shouldn't shut down just because the government told you to. I don't know. I got to see that guy every week. You're weak. You got no ability to stand on your own. You're weak. We growl, it says. And, and it sounds funny because you say you growl like bears, and to some degree you could laugh at it, but the point is, is this. There's two exclamations that's going on here. One is a, a, a bold proclamation saying, I'm in pain. That's the growl like the bear. But then there's the involuntary exclamation, right? It's almost like if you punch somebody hard enough, you hear them go, oh, like that. That's the moan. There's the growl, there's the moan. Do we hear growls in society? Yes, we do. People marching, saying black lives matter. Other people marching, saying blue lives matter. People marching for Trump, people marching for Biden. It's people growling all over the world. But we also see people moaning. Victims of crime. Crime is rising throughout the world. There's moans that I hear from people that nobody else hears. The innocent children that are getting slaughtered every day, people go to abortion clinics. And they pretend that those souls are not moaning. Kids whose parents don't take them to school. My father told me it's hard for people to go to school five days a week. If you can't get to school five days a week, how can you learn? That's not the kid's fault. That's the parent's fault. And when the kids grow up and they don't know how to read, then we just throw them and we say, well, figure it out. And they came. And they moan. We hope, it says again, it's repeated. But what is it doing? It's kind of sandwiching this section so we can see that it's a section in the Bible. That's the way that Bible, the Bible creates structure, right? And it's trying to tell us we hope for all these things, but we're disappointed. You count all these we hopes and we gropes and we stumbles and all these. What you start to realize is that we are 
perfectly hopeless. There's seven of them. You can count. But then it says in verse 12, why do we hope and we're perfectly disappointed? For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins, we can't stop. It's like I say to myself, right? I'm not just using me as a hypothetical. Let's say I say to myself, I'm going to stop cussing. And you try to stop cussing, but you can't. You say you're going to stop lusting, but you can't. You say you're going to stop gossiping, but you can't. You say you're going to stop lying, but you can't. Your sins multiply, and then our sins testify. Now, on one hand, we could say the sins testify in a sense that they testify and they tell God everything we're doing, but another way you could look at it is we're guilty. Our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities. We feel bad about it. We have guilt, but we can't get away with it. People talk about mental health. I believe there's mental health problems because there's undealt with sin problems. And what happens is, when you deal with sin long enough, sin is corrosive to the mental stability of somebody. And so you sit there and you keep on sinning, eventually you will have mental illness. Now, some people are born that way, and I'm not saying they're not, but a lot of people in high school, they was normal like me and you. But when you look at them at 50 years old and they've been abusing drugs all their lives, you say, man, this person, when did mental illness come in? It came in with sin. It came in with pain. Death, guilt, broken relationships, broken opportunities, all those things degrade the spirit. And your mind is a spiritual thing. And so it's no wonder that your mind becomes degraded. We know our iniquities. What are our iniquities? Well, he said these things, but I, I can't help but seeing symbolism here because he says six things. And so we know our sins, basically he said, we know our sins is the nature of man, is what he's saying, if you want to look at it symbolically. But what he's saying is, number one, we step past God's lines. We know where God's lines are, and we are habitual line steppers, right? We deny God. We say that's not God, when we know it is. We turn back from doing good. We got lots of people, they get saved, they get baptized, they become members, and then they go on. Where are they at? Brother Cliff come to me and he say, hey, brother so-and-so said he's going to be back on Sunday. We all say, as a, as, in the leadership meeting, we all lean back and say, yeah, right. He ain't going to be back. Why? Because we habitually see people turn back from doing good. Right? The turn back is almost the idea of repenting. What is it? They're repenting from doing good. We speak of God as oppressing. People always do that. Well, please leave me alone, okay? Don't say nothing to me right now. Why not? You are speaking about the people of God and the things of God as if it's oppressing you. It's not oppressing you. Sin is oppressing you. We seek to rebel. We always looking for opportunities to sneak out. 
And then it says, we speak evil from the heart. In other words, we speak evil and we mean it. And then it ends with society as a whole being destroyed. Verse 14, justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and who do he who departs from evil makes himself prey. What is going on here? Righteousness will not approach a society that's set on sin. And truth has stumbled in the public squares. People are constantly lying. It's amazing to me. You don't even have to be a person. Sometimes I always get mad because when I hear pastors, what will happen is they'll often try to play both sides as equal, being equally balanced and evil. But I do have to say, when I look at our politics today, and I see prosecution, and I see political leaders prosecuting the other side, I have to say to myself, that's evil. I don't have to like Trump. But I do have to say to myself, goodness gracious, is he really guilty of anything for saying his property is worth $3 billion when it's $2.9 billion? And is that really worth going to jail? And if the bank signed off on his loan, why is he being fined for that? And all these things what we can say is, you don't necessarily got to vote for him. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is, is that evil? Yes, it is. It's people abusing their power. And so truth stumbles in the public square. People make use of the law and they abuse the law. Righteousness is not allowed. How many people made fun of the former governor of Indiana, Mike Pence, when he said, I don't meet along with women? What? What's wrong with you? There's nothing wrong with that man. He's trying not to be the next Bill Clinton. <laughs> Truth is lacking, and morality is oppressed. He says, he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Try to leave doing evil and see what they do to you. society becomes destroyed by sin. All of this happens but God. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. When we come to this passage, what we're going to see is that God's power is not limited but his patience is. He sees these things in the distrust, dis, dis, in, this injustice, the evil that's going on, the corruption that's going on, it bothers him. He sees. One of the most insightful passages I saw was in Exodus. In the early part of Exodus, it says the people were enslaved. Then it says, and God saw. And God saw. And the people were suffering, and it says, and God knew. God sees. God knows. He's not ignoring the things that are going on here. And then it says, it's interesting, verse 16, it says, he wondered that there was no one to intercede. You could almost change the words up and say he was shocked that nobody stood up. 
He was shocked. He said, it's all these people calling themselves justice warriors. Nobody's standing up to this. And he said, God looked around himself. He rolled up his sleeves. He said his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. What did he do? He got dressed. What did he get dressed with? He got dressed for war. Righteousness as his breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head, garments of vengeance is called, zeal as a cloak. Where do we see this passage used again? Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 is so powerful because what it ultimately shows is spiritual warfare is when we put on the armor that our father wore. In this passage, God puts on his armor, and what is he doing? Oh, he's going to slay somebody. Verse 18, according to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord dries. What's going to happen? The Lord is going to repay each evil deed. And they will fear him because he's going to come on them suddenly. You know, every week, we preach the word of God. And we preach about God's power. And we preach about the fact that he will judge evil. But if you're evil and your heart is wicked, you will still be surprised when the Lord rushes on you. I pray that you don't think that you have an opportunity to wait to repent. Because it describes here the idea that God is so fast, it's like the rushing of the wind. It's like you didn't even see them coming, but all of a sudden you'd have seen it happen. It kind of reminds me, I used to watch some old anime, and in these anime, somebody would be a samurai, and they would go like this. Then the music would change. Then you'd have seen him go like this. And he would walk past the person, and the person would still be standing there. You're like, what's going on? Then all this blood would come out the person. Because he slashed him that quick, right? And that's kind of the idea you get from God. It's like God was sitting there, and he was so mad. And then he finally got dressed, and everybody was thinking this is going to take a couple hours, and then he's just like, it's over. And that's scary because Revelations echoes that, doesn't it? It says he had a sword in his mouth. He's not going to sit there and duel you. He's just going to say, die. Soul to hell. Weapons destroyed. How do you stop somebody like that? He's unstoppable. He's an unstoppable force. When he decides to fight, he will kill. It said the word of the Lord is like a double-edged sword. In other words, there's no mercy when you fight God. So don't fight him. You know, if there was a single-edged sword, that could mean I could flip it around and I could hit you in such a way that you could survive. But it says God's sword is double-edged. It kills both ways. You're not going to escape. And in the midst of God doing his judgment and doing his justice, 
verse 20 and 21 comes in, which is shocking, isn't it? Because it seems like this passage should continue with him still killing, but in verse 20 it says, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, declares the Lord. It's interesting because one of the best ways to learn about the Bible is from the Bible. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11, verse 26. This passage was fresh in my mind because we're going through a Romans revolution on Thursday Bible study. You could check us out. Anybody who wants to check us out, we're having a great time going through the book of Romans. Romans is a beautiful book because every time you think that you have a point to counter what Paul is saying, he already counters it. But it says, and it quotes the same passage, but it includes a little bit of explanation. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Interesting, right? Because he includes a few words that are not seen in Isaiah. In other words, Paul is adding explanation that we might have missed. In verse 20, it says in Isaiah 59, a redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth. So not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth forevermore. What's the Lord going to do? He's going to save through a redeemer. And this redeemer, like Romans says, will banish sin. But it also says in Isaiah 59, he will come to those who turn from transgression. And there's no contradiction there. There's no contradiction between Romans and Isaiah, even though it's the same passage, they mean the same thing. What does it mean for Jesus to banish sin? It means for you to repent. What does it mean for you to repent? Jesus has to banish sin. They mean the same. And what is the sign that Jesus will do these things? Well, God makes a covenant with him. Now, that should be shocking to us because if you read Isaiah, you will know there's already a covenant. So there's a new covenant that God is making. He says, I'm going to put my spirit on you. That's the first part of it. God is going to send his spirit. And then the second part of his covenant is that he's going to empower the preaching of his word. He said, I'm going to put my word in your mouth, and I'm going to put it in the mouth of your children's mouth, and I'm going to put it in your mouth of your grandkids' mouth, and this word will not depart. What is he saying? I'm going to empower the preaching of the word. Now, what does this passage mean? One of the things we have to look at when we look at this passage is the concept of justice. Justice. Look at verse 4. It mentions justice. It says, no one enters suit justly. Verse 8, the way of peace they do not know, but there is no justice in their paths. Verse 9, therefore justice is far from us. Verse 11, 
We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. Verse 14, justice is turned back. Verse 15, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. What is justice? Well, justice is when righteousness thrives. And injustice is when God's law is overturned. And when we look at it, what we can say is this, that God is consistent and he's determined that his law be upheld. That's justice. God wants his law to be enacted throughout the whole universe. That's justice. Justice is important in this passage, but it's not the only thing that's important in this passage. You gotta balance this one. First, let's look here and look at verse one through three. The idea from verse one through three is that sin has created a separation. But verse four through eight explains that there's no one who does right, so we're all under sin. This third section. Verse 9 through 13, justice is far from us, explains that our works cannot uphold the law of God. We can't meet it. We can't meet the standard of justice. The fourth section, verse 14 and the first part of verse 15, God's law is broken. Justice is turned back. The fourth section, if justice is turned back, the only one who can make it right is God. In the sixth section, Jesus reconciles God and man. He satisfies God's justice. Now, you can look at this in three ways. One is you can look at it as a society, right? As a society, to the degree that we are separated by God is because of our sins. Our society is corrupted because no one does right. And it is not until we yield to God that we can expect our societies to thrive. The only one who could bring our societies back to God is Jesus. But we can also look at this as a picture of man. Sin separates us from our God. There is no man who does what is right. There is no man who works justify him. There is no one who can satisfy the standards of the law until God acts and sends his Redeemer and his Holy Spirit to make us right. Which leads to the third way of viewing this passage is this passage is about salvation. Because it is your sin that separates you from God. And you do wrong just like I do wrong. And no matter how hard we try to do our works, our works can't reach God's righteous standard because his law has been broken. And it is not until God dresses himself up and goes to war against sin that we can have victory over sin. But then he doesn't just go to war against sin. He sends us a redeemer. 
and he makes a new covenant where he gives us his spirit and the preaching of the word. And what you see when you look at this passage is it's kind of a bookend. In other words, there's six sections, and each section is answered by the opposite one. You see? Sin has made a separation between you and your God, but Jesus reconciles God and man. No one does what is right, but God goes to war and set things right. And in the middle, without God, there's only injustice, depression, and lies. When you look at this passage, what you see in the first section is a you focus in the first part. It's a prosecution so that we can all understand that we are guilty. But the second section is universal. No one, they, it's this idea that there is no one who's excluded from this passage. Everybody is guilty. And you might say, well, they and no one, it doesn't include me. But this third section brings you back in when it says we and us. We hope. We growl. We moan. All of us yearn for a universe that God sets right. The third section is a description of mankind in total that everybody would know. But in the fifth section is God who does all the acting. It's God who sees. It's God who does salvation for himself. It's God who dresses himself. It's God who goes to war. It's God who slays. It's God who's feared. It's God in the sixth section who sends a redeemer. And the whole point of the passage is this. Our sin separates us from our God and plunges us into injustice. But God steps in and wars against sin to save us from our sins. We ought to have these thoughts from this passage. We don't hear from God because sin doesn't allow us to perceive him. There was a passage where Jesus heard a voice thundering. And other people heard what was said, and other people didn't hear what was clearly. And the idea was this. The pastor was saying, to the degree that you're close to God is to the degree that you'll hear him. Often, when we sin, we don't want to hear from God. We want to be left alone. We want to do our dirt. We want to be in the darkness. If we have a hole in our heart, and we all do, that yearning is ultimately met by God and not anything else. And the fourth point that we need to understand is that the Redeemer is the ultimate act of war against sin and injustice. It is Jesus who we need to have proper understanding of to understand what our problem is. I think we need to have a proper perspective, and that is that God's arm is not short. He still saves and he still hears. We need to properly have a perspective that sin is pervasive, universal, and corrosive, and sin is always the core of man's problem. Not education, not racism, not this, not It's sin that causes it. We need to understand that God sees, God cares, God is acting, and God will act. He's doing a work. We need to understand that God sent his Holy Spirit as a response to sin and man's problem. And we need to understand that God 
empowers his word, and it persists throughout all generations because of his power. We need to put some things into practice. We need to practice humility. Because this pastor says we are all sinners. There's nobody in here who's perfect. We need to practice thanksgiving. God saved us from ourselves. How thankful should we be because of that? And then we need to understand how injustice is contagious. So we need to make ourselves accountable. When we sin, it's contagious. When other sin is contagious. We need to be bold against sin because we want people who hold us accountable to be bold to us. And the last thing we need to do is we need to see Jesus in this passage. I want you to see the Holy Spirit in verse 21. It is the Holy Spirit that is the pledge of the covenant. So in response, we should be filled by him. I want you to notice the Father in this passage. The Father is the one who puts on armor to defeat sin, and his glory will extend across the world. That's why it says, according to his deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so that they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. So worship him. Then we need to remember that the Son is a redeemer who banishes sin and saves those who repent. He bridges the gap between God and man. He provides for God's perfect justice. And he will turn society back towards righteousness when he takes over the world. So glorify him. And let's remember that God wars against evil to save men from themselves. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We pray and bless you, Lord, that we will live according to your word. We don't want to be those who come to church and do one thing and go out there in the world and be defeated. We want to be those who are victorious over sin, but the only way we could be victorious is if we understand that you have ways of war against sin for us. And we thank you, Lord, for you cleaving a path for us. And so now all we have to do is follow that path, Lord. We need to repent and turn towards you. Turn towards your son so your son can banish sin for us. Be filled by your spirit, Lord, so that we can war against sin. Submit to you, the Father, Lord, so that sin will have no dominion over us. So help us, Lord. Help us. Help us in the midst of this spiritual warfare that we would be victorious. In your name we pray. Amen.
Ladies, we just had a wonderful sermon, but if you could quickly come up to the front, just a quick talk about the women's retreat, just really quickly up here to the right. Charmone is in the nursery. She'll be here in a moment. 